0: The Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 17 of Planted with Sarah Pine. I'm Sarah Pine, your host, and this week is Veterans Day. It's actually tomorrow. And today we have Eric Gopel from the, Ven- the Veterans Cannabis Coalition joining us. Eric, welcome. Thank you for being on today.
1: Thank you so much, Sarah. Looking forward to our conversation.
0: Yeah, well, we've got a lot of great stuff to cover. Um, with this being this week being the week of Veterans Day, it's it's really important to talk about a lot of the great work that you and other veterans are doing to create access for people who need it. And one of the things I wanted to start out with so that our listeners understand why this is so important Um is talking about vets and PTSD. You want to talk a little bit about that, and and actually, before we do that, let me go back a little bit more. Sure. Let's talk about your organization and why you started it.
1: Right. So the Veterans Cannabis Coalition. Uh, we're an independent advocacy group founded by myself and my uh, co-founder Bill Ferguson in two thousand or twenty eighteen. Excuse me. Um, we're both Iraq War veterans. We had both spent, uh, you know. So, uh, significant amount of time in D.C. working on policy and lobbying um, issues in a variety of different contexts. And we, had, we saw the, the real need for a persistent um, veteran advocate on cannabis-related issues because we both personally understood the, you know, the powerful in- impact, especially medical impact of cannabis. We had seen that um, repeatedly in the lives of other veterans we had witnessed. Or you know we had, we had, we know and had have gotten to know uh, over the course of our advocacy, and we've seen the, I guess what would you know, the sort, the sort of uh, worst case scenario, where veterans who, you know, were on cocktails of toxic and addicted medic uh, pharmaceuticals, who had almost you know no al- no real alternatives uh, you know or alternative forms of treatment available to them, who over time basically succumbed to. Uh, what I would consider like pharmaceutical harms, right? Uh, you know, the, the a lot, a term that's uh, often used in, you know, in relations to seniors and how many medications they take, and I think you've dealt with, uh, you know, senior patients too, right? Polypharmacy. Yep. Taking multiple medications at the same time, um, often, you know, often taking medications to counteract the side effects of other medications, Right. Right. And veterans and PT and, you know, you mentioned PTSD a little bit before this, and this is probably a good way to segue right into it, right? Like PTSD is a very complex condition, right? There's physical, there's physical physiological aspects to it, you know, like hypervigilance and, you know, um, you know th- things that, uh, like, you know, physical responses, like, you know, sweating and things like that. And there's also tons of, you know, mental aspects of PTSD, uh, like depression and insomnia and anxiety, Right. Now, because they because PTSD is a condition that presents both physical and mental symptoms, and because we exist in a medical system that basically assigns one pill, you know, per uh, major symptom, veterans end up, you know, being prescribed, you know, four, five, six, you know, in some you know, in, in the very severe cases, you know, close to a dozen different medications to manage you know, these different symptoms that are arising from these complex and, you know, oftentimes overlapping uh, disorders and other conditions. Now, the end result of that is that there are a lot of, you know, veterans end up, um, you know, my co-founder you know, uh, experienced this directly, uh, you know, they, you know, it ends up sort of in this perpetual brain fog or, you know, having fits of uncontrollable rage or, you know, just and you know, sexual dysfunction or any number of other side effects that come with, you know, heavy pharmaceutical use, um, on top of their existing, you know, their already pre-existing conditions, it, you know, and we wonder why veterans die at such high rates of suicide, and more importantly, why why the rate of suicide has not changed in 15 years, despite billions of dollars in interventions and dozens of you know programs and reports and commissions and all sorts of other.
0: You know, interventions
1: designed specifically to prevent veteran suicide—none of them, none of them have made an impact. In fact, veteran suicide is up six percent. I mean, last—you know, based off of, based off of the you know most recent data, which is always two or three years behind, right? Um, because that's you know that's kind of the you know that's the government we have right now. Um, you know, and why is that? Well, it's like the one thing that the VA and private health and a lot of these interventions have never really taken into account is that pharmaceutical use. Right. Because it's, it's just like sort of it's like in the environment and, you know, people will s- sort of obliquely recognize it. But, like and, you know, and this is where this is what I tell now, you know, staff and members of Congress and really whoever else will listen to me. Right. Which is why are we why are we surprised that veterans continue to die at such high rates of suicide when we regularly prescribe them drugs that are known to increase the risk of suicide? Right, right, and, and then providing them no alternatives. To
0: them. Yeah, and then when you think about just what a person goes through, when I, I think about like in my family, my grandfather and my great uncle both were in World War II, and my my uncle Vilho was with Patton from Africa all through to the concentration camps. When he came back. Yeah he didn't, he didn't, he disengaged from society. He came back a war hero, but he was never the same. And I, I just think about, you know, when people go into self-medicating, whether they realize it or not, like my uncle, his, his response to that was having issues with alcoholism.
1: And that's generally it, right? Like alcohol has been, I mean, if you want to go back to, uh, you know, talking about like PTSD and veteran, the veteran experience, a, a lot of times, um, you'll see in like treatment literature references to like Odysseus, right? You know, you know, it's a Greek, you know, classical Greek hero written by Homer who spent years, you know, he, he went, Odysseus went off and fought, fought a war and then essentially spent these uh, allegorical years sort of wandering and trying to return home, right? And in the, in the sort of course of his experience, he evidenced all, all, so many of the symptoms of PTSD or, you know, moral injury which often kind of get lumped, lumped together. Yeah. And, you know, even someone like your uncle, you know, like your uncle who fought in a, you know, I mean, I can't think of a more just war, right, that the United States at least has been engaged in, you know, than fighting, you know, Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan during World War II. You know, and, and to think that, you know, people who were, you know, even people, you know, soldiers who were fighting, you know, fighting the good fight, so to speak, right, to come home with that kind of trauma and to be, you know, and the expectations is sort of like don't talk about it, right, yeah. like you know and and to know especially in the World War two veteran that ten million other or fourteen million other people served you know not necessarily in the same battlefield that you did, but you know a lot a giant chunk of the United States population served in one way or another during that war
0: it's it's yeah. true and and that's one of the things you know my uncle and my grandfather never talked about the war. The only thing my uncle ever said was. Well, what I learned later on, um, before he left, he was in love. And when he came back, he just couldn't believe what human beings could do to one another. And it really traumatized him for the rest of his life.
1: And and that's, you know, I mentioned moral injury. You know, that's the moral injury part, right? Whereas like PTSD, you know, if you look at the, the sort of literature around it, theoretically, there's a triggering event, right, that puts you in fear of your life or the like, you know, it was like essentially, you know, you're you're putting fear of your life. You've you witnessed death or, you know, something pretty heinous, um, you know, and either witness it or fail to intervene or, you know, there's, there's a variety of things. But usually there's some sort of trigger, whereas, you know, I, I can't imagine fighting. You know, uh, so, I mean, I'm not re- not going to really try to relate World War Two experience to Iraq, but the the sort of long, you know, but, you know, doing multiple tours, in, in places where, you know, we're nominally trying to help people and then just seeing nothing, ha- you know, like, what progress are we making? You know, yeah. Everyone, almost everyone that we worked with in any real capacity in Iraq uh, is dead or a refugee. Uh, you know, the lucky few have been able to come, you know, have been able to uh, get special immigrant visas and come to the United States. Uh, you know, it, but, you know, what, what have we left for the people that we spent so long and, you know, and theoretically – you know thousands of american lives and literally trillions of dollars trying to fi- you know i don't want to say fix right but well i mean that's that was sort of the perception that we were trying to fix iraq mm-hmm. um and you know and where are we today you know I, I have to imagine that you know that has to be very similar to vietnam veterans especially you know that i mean vietnam people think that afghanistan is actually the longest war but uh in technically vietnam started in 1955 so it ran from like 55 to 75 76. Wow. So anyway. yeah i mean cuz that that's when us involvement started in the 50s when eisenhower started to send troops over cuz the french were getting their ass kicked by uh uh by ho chi men, right mm-hmm. so you know it, and of course like the 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 nature of that war shifted very substantially over time right and it escalated considerably uh, especially you know in their in later phases of the war uh but but, if it, but, to know, but to have served in any capacity during that time, or you know, to been involved in like the secret bombing of, of Laos and Cambodia, right? Which you know everyone everyone knew was sort of illegal, and that's why we kept it secret for so, you know, or tried to keep it secret for as long as we could. Um, you know, what what is the, you know what are the impacts on the people that have to that are the you know the, the people involved in actually executing U.S. policy in this way, right? I mean, it, they're lifelong. I mean, my grandfather, uh, you know, he served in Korea. He was a uh, defense contract, Sikorsky, which is a helicopter manufacturer, uh, contractor um, in Southeast Asia, <laughs> quote unquote. You know, it's like I think he was in Cambodia or Laos, uh, right? Like he, you know, I, you know, I remember, uh, you know, talking about like how no one talks about the war. I mean, all, so many of my family are veterans. I've almost heard nothing about their military experience from any one of them. That's just the real. Uh, the reality of that, you know, and my grandfather's the same way, you know, both of my grandfathers served one, you know, one was a, uh, a career naval um, uh, career sailor. You know, the other was also a sailor, you know, did his time. They all had so much, you know, pent up just trauma related to the related to those things. And they never And I don't know if they ever really felt comfortable talking to anyone about it. And they all internalized it in different ways and, and processed it in different ways and figured out other ways to manage it. I think most just sort of shut it off, right? Stuff it down and right. compartmentalize as best they can. But, of course, it all comes out in periods of stress or, you know, alcohol use or other drug use, right? Like when, you're, you know, the guard starts to slip and now the memories start to come back. And because you've never been able to, you know, deal with it in any, in any real substantive way, you know you're just overwhelmed and you lash out or you self harm or you do any number of things that aren't you know that are that are like you know that's all it's all it's all lose lose right like and that's you know that that has been the veteran experience for a very long time it, and yes yeah, I'll pause there for a second <laughs> oh, no no
0: no that's all that's all great stuff i mean very intense and and sad and and it's something we have to talk about because it's and then when you look at like you know veterans from the korean war in vietnam are now becoming you know their senior citizens so there are other things that are compounded yeah. with all of this and and like you were saying you know there's a lot of pharmaceuticals that can create a a, a suicidal a tendency for suicide and then you also have as people are getting older um with dementia like when well, we we talk about like there are, are there's a black box formulary of uh, pharmaceuticals that they use to treat people with dementia which one of the side effects uh, strangely enough for people with dementia can be sudden unexplained death and you know we've actually well, that's been
1: why able... Alzheimer's is one of the top killers, right? Right. Uh, in this country. Yeah. yeah,
0: and that's you know when my, my grandmother had it, and and I wished I would have been able to give that's her nice. cannabis. Yeah, because yeah. there's, the, oh, there's there's so much that it does to help <laughs> with that too, you know.
1: Yeah, my yeah. So I mean, my uh, you know my so all my grandparents have passed. Um, both my my uh, my mom, my maternal grandfather you know, he was, he was the career, uh, career sailor, you know, he passed, uh, before I was born, right. He was a coal miner, went off in the Navy for 20 years, you know, uh, came back with a family and then kind of returned to the mines, you know, and he, but, you know, he smoked and he drank, you know, my grandfather died of heart disease. I mean, relatively, uh, you know, in, within the, within the age of, I guess, expe- you know, life expectancy range. So I don't think it was particularly unexpected, but, my my grandmother, dealt with the Alzheimer's for uh, for years, and uh, both my mother and my stepfather died from alcohol-related uh, complications. Um, and they were they were both veterans as well. My my grand or my stepfather being a uh, combat veteran from Vietnam, and my uh, my mother being um, uh, she served in, during the Vietnam era. But she was, you know, but uh, she I think she was a, a signal uh, core analyst at that time. Wow. Radio communication stuff back in the day, right? You know, very primitive, I'm sure, compared to what we're, <laughs> anything we're dealing with now. But like at the time, of course, got an edge. Uh, you know, and it's like that's, that's been my family experience is sort of, you know, knowing that, you know, and, and kind of seeing, seeing the sort of long term effects of just never really been able to find something that works for you that doesn't come with just severe side effects. Whether you know, or uh, or other or complications, right? Like alcohol, I guess you know people have successfully self medicated on with alcohol for you know, successful. I mean, might be uh, kind of a, a relative term there, but you know, stable on alcohol, I guess, right, you know, for years potentially, right? Until until they're not, right? Until the hepatitis or cirrhosis or you know something else you know, comes into play, or a DUI, and then all of a sudden, right? Like it's no longer. No longer working for them, and in fact, it's now turned you know pretty considerably against them, and that that is not the case with Kansas. Right. And, you know, your, you know if, if, if I could offer my grandmother, or my mother, or my stepfather, any of the any of the people I've known who, who would have benefited, uh, who have passed, who would have benefited benefited from it, I would have. And that's, I mean, that, and that's a big part of uh, you know what drives a lot of my advocacy is sort of this not this knowledge of how many people in my life personally or, you know, secondhand have, uh, you know, have passed and suffered, I think, unnecessarily because of prohibition.
0: Right. And so when we're trying to to smooth that road for access for people, what are some of the things that you're coming across? I'm imagining that you've had a lot of roadblocks on the federal level.
1: Right. Yeah, we we initially got started trying to move a cannabis research bill um, through the House, and we were initially pretty successful in 2018 when we when we got started. Um, the VA cannabis, or, excuse me, the VA medicinal cannabis research Act 2018 became the first bi- the first cannabis related bill of any kind, to to our knowledge, ever advance out of congressional committee, um, and that was the House Veterans Affairs or the House Veterans Affairs Committee under Republican leadership, which is even more surprising. And so you know us being not not cynical enough. Apparently, <laughs> thought that we actually had a shot of you know at a VA cannabis research maybe being the first, um, you know the first kind of like chip in the the wall of prohibition, right? Because we knew that it wasn't going to substan- it wasn't going to substantially change people's you know veteran access to cannabis or anything else, but at least it was going to lay the groundwork for future for future reform as well as you know, undermine the government position that cannabis has no medical value, right? We all understand that it does. The, the federal government admits that it does, at least that admits that the individual constituents of cannabis have medical value, it, even if somehow the entire plant together does not. Um, you know, and, you know, but that bill failed. Uh, you know, uh, it failed because, you know, Republican, leader, Republican leadership at the time didn't want to take it up. And unfortunately, we, we've seen essentially the same issue with uh, under Democratic leadership. The bill, you know, pa- it was delayed for a year, passed out of committee right before COVID in March. But will it ever be included in any uh, in any packages or passed as standalone legislation? Well, still hasn't. So my expectation is that it won't. And that's all. That's that's purely a reflection of political will. Right. Um, you know, we we've seen, you know, but to the, you know, but uh, but on the on a good note, right? Veterans Cannabis Coalition is part of the National Marijuana Justice Coalition, which includes the ACLU and Normal uh, Drug Policy Alliance, and you know, uh, 12 other uh, nonprofit and uh, or 11 other uh, nonprofits and uh, advocacy organizations. And collectively, we're all advocating on behalf of the MORE Act, the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act. Which deschedules cannabis, decriminalizes, deschedules, which effectively decriminalizes, because just to explain to folks um, who might not know the difference, rescheduling cannabis would just mean changing it from a Schedule I substance, which, means, which is defined as having no medicinal value and a high potential for abuse, to a lower schedule. But it still retains the criminal penalties for possessing a controlled substance without proper medical um, documentation, essentially. Whereas descheduling, removing cannabis entirely from the Controlled Substances Act, the plant and shouldn't be on there in the first place. That basically effectively decriminalizes at the federal level, meaning that it's no longer a controlled substance. So that means possession, cultivation, manufacturing, transportation, all of the other crimes, quote unquote, that are associated with using or having cannabis are removed. Right? It doesn't. It doesn't. But the, the critical point there is that it does not create the enabling what do you call enabling legislation to then federally legalize cannabis. That's the big thing that people might not quite grasp is that descheduling does not mean that the federal government now allows for import-export or that interstate commerce is possible or any of that, right? It simply just removes uh, cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act and then you know, creates the, uh, the, the, uh, the circumstances where you know, Congress can then pass further legislation to answer those questions. Because in the meanwhile, between descheduling and, and full legalization, the states are basically you know, after their own devices. So you know, California, um, cannabis tax and regulation laws are not going to, are not going to change you know, under federal descheduling. It would only be under some future and currently unproposed um, you know, tax and regulation uh, scheme, which no one is no one's really at that point yet, even advocates. Uh, mainly because every state has kind of taken their own approach to uh, legalizing, taxing, and regulating cannabis. And for the most part, advocates are, are – like myself – are very – are inclined just to kind of let that play its course and kind of let people catch up uh, more or less before we, before we start to push for um, you know, sort of uniform um, regulation of, of, of cannabis. And more importantly, I'm, I'm not really a, a fan of uh, a lot of federal intervention in, in cannabis in general – <laughs> you know, because it's a plant, so it's like I don't really, you know. So beyond, you know, beyond commercializing it and uh, and licensing in that way, I really think that individual rights to use and associate with others who use and um, for non-commercial purposes shouldn't be infringed whatsoever. So, um, but that all sort, you know, that's all sort of in the wind currently. That, yeah. but the Moore Act is going to be coming up for you know today is uh, November tenth. Tomorrow is Veterans Day. The MORE Act should be coming up. For a vote, either the first or second week of December. So that will be the first opportunity that con- that that any Congress is going to have to vote on a cannabis descheduling bill, which again, not legalization, but the first kind of the first step, um, or you know, a, a large step to, or you know, effectively, it it, does, it doesn't legalize it, but it does end cannabis prohibition as we know it. Right. Right. right because it will no it'll no longer be treated in that way legally
0: well okay so when you and I met we were doing uh we were doing a veterans uh, a cable show and we were talking yeah. about cannabis and we had somebody from the VA on there um and it's been a little bit of time so I'm imagining there may have been some changes what uh. yeah yeah <laughs>
1: If only, right i know. i see it seems like
0: there's a little bit more of a don't ask don't tell policy with with certain parts of the v a than there was before
1: it, it, it's it's a very mixed bag right the v a is three hundred and i don't know fifty thousand employees over eleven 1, hundred uh you know- me- uh, clinics and and hospitals and all all this admin and everything else right they operate in all fifty states it's it's the largest unified medical system in the country the v a serving over 6 million veteran patients, 6 million veteran patients. Um, you know, so it's a big ship, right? And it doesn't, uh, and because it's so fragmented, you know, not, you know, not every piece basically acts the same way. So if you're a veteran and, and, and um, for, sort of from the top, the VA is not supposed to penalize veterans. It's supposed to encourage doctors to talk to veterans about their cannabis use. And it's not supposed to, yeah, it, it essentially it shouldn't be used against you course that's not actually the case we've heard from some veterans who've talked to their doctors uh, especially veterans who might be prescribed schedule two substances stuff like adderall right because mm-hmm. they're uh you know veterans are often given sedatives and then have a hard time staying awake so you know they give you a sedative which puts you asleep, and then they give you a stimulant to keep you up but in reality it's like you're just speedballing right mm-hmm. i mean you're taking amphetamine Ad- adderall's amphetamine um you know and then you're taking something like ambien or you know a benzodiazepine uh, like you know, uh, Valium or Xanax, uh, you know, to get to sleep. So I mean, you know, and that, you know, that goes back into the pharmacological harm and everything else. But you know what, uh, you know what we're looking at here, you know, with the VA, I think is, it's an institution that has the capacity to change, but it needs to be compelled to do so. Right? Individual VA doctors might be very open talking about cannabis use with their with veteran patients but they're still restricted because of the you know the the legal uh you know the the laws that they have to operate under their federal employees right they can't they can't recommend uh even at the state level uh patients to use a a federally controlled substance that is the the big contention between the va and 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 some advocates basically asking the va to to get involved in this the reality is the va's VA's number one fallback is that as long as it's a scheduled substance, we really can't do anything with it, even if that's not true. Um, it has become very, very tough to get the VA to move, which is why we initial the, vet- the Veterans, uh, the VA Medicinal Cannabis Research Act um, over the last couple of years was going to be like our attempt to get them to do that. Um, now, you know, we- we've we've sent sort of, you know, you know, gone back to the drawing board a little bit with you know, how maybe the VA needs to be best approached. And right now what we're looking at is working with some other uh, medical professionals uh, who are aligned in the cannabis advocacy space um, to propose a, you know, new legislation that would create some sort of continuing medical education about cannabis within the VA health healthcare system. Because mm-hmm. right now there's no, there's no official like, you know, content the VA produces telling doctors anything about cannabis, even though, you know, I mean, obviously, you're, yeah, I mean, you're you're an advocate, and you know the medical side of this stuff. I mean, it's it's one of the most important neurotransmitter systems in your body, the endocannabinoid system, and most doctors have no clue how it functions or how phytocannabinoids like THC and CBD found in the cannabis plant interact with those, right? Yeah. And it's like, it's like not understanding like the endocrine or like the lymphatic system, and it's just like, how are you really a doctor? <laughs> CB one and CB two receptors are literally located throughout you know every you know um, throughout your entire body. They seem to influence, I mean, just a whole list of you know physiological processes. And like we're just content with just ignoring it and not not trying to investigate it to its fullest extent and figuring out like how it can best serve us. Like that to me that that's just completely antithetical to being a doctor or being a scientist or you know. But I'm not either of those things. <laughs> you know, so maybe maybe I'm
0: missing something. Well, I mean it's it's true. I mean that's why I do as an educator, I actually do a lot of lecturing at healthcare institutions like UCSF and Kaiser. Right. Because they don't understand it. And um like even working with pharmacology students and explaining to them, you know, how it works and, and how to Find dosage because there's, I mean, even in the industry itself, there's a lot of haziness. Like when there's suggested dosage on boxes, and w- what we really should be doing is having the conversation about how everybody reacts differently and how do we create this, you know, safe container for ex- exploration with, you know, the way that the cannabinoids and terpenes work. We, we base our education on a broad generalization about how the majority of human beings respond to it. But then right. let, let's let set up, you know, the foundation for successful experimentation with it as well. Um, I also think that, you know, because I have a lot of veterans that I work with and, you know, I look at them and I think, what would it have been like if after they had, you know, after when they're recovering that they're actually able to have like a CBD regimen or something that's restorative to help oh. like you know right after the fact what would that do I'll just do? put
1: this out I mean I mean I'll just put this out in the air in the hopes that someone puts it you know takes it up but like if I, if I was to design a, a clinical trial like the first clinical trial I would do with a cannabinoid would be to put CBD up against ibuprofen or any other NSAID nonsteroidal mm-hmm. anti-inflammatory drug The like NSAIDs, especially like ibuprofen and Advil, Tylenol, these have become like the crutch of the healthcare system for treating inflammation and essentially pain that doesn't match the level of being prescribed an opioid, right? But the you know, but you you know what the results of this stuff? I mean, you're you know, I was at one point, I had like uh, while I was still in the military, you know, they call them like Ranger candy, these 800 milligram tabs of ibuprofen. And we were, we were told to take four of those things a day. <laughs> wow. 3,200 milligrams of ibuprofen a day. And I know I was taking more. I was probably taking close to like 4,000, you know, or over 4,000 milligrams a day, right? Because I had, you know, because I was, I was in a position where I was, in, you know, I couldn't really get real medical care or not the kind that like, like, I couldn't, like, I can't stop doing my job.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, I'm in pain. Um, how am I going to get through this, Right. And there's so many people in the military that basically adopt that mindset because they're forced to, and they carry that outward with them, right? Which is like, I I, I don't have any help, so how am I going to get through this? Um, you know, and and this is where you know not just the education part, which is essential and huge to any any kind of advocacy around cannabis, but just creating you know community around it as well, because. Uh, I mean to, what, what you pointed out it does like we kind of have a general sense of how people will generally react to THC or CBD but we all, but we know, or any of the other cannabinoids, but we also understand that you know because we know these people too that you know some people cannot tolerate THC or you know because they have severe anxiety uh, when they take it or you know uh, I guess probably make, I'm sure there is in some cases where CBD is not well tolerated by people right maybe oh, they have some liver issue
0: Absolutely so, well I mean with CBD I'll- what it is a lot of times it can make people, it can give people the blues if they're, if they're sensitive to it. Or right. instead of how, you know, it, it kind of creates balance for some people, for some people it can elevate them to the point where they actually feel like slightly agitated. It's a, it's a small group of people, but it's much more than we thought it was before. And as more people start to use it, we'll start to, you know, see these interesting reactions, which a lot of them have to do with our neurodiversity as well. And that's one of the things that right. we don't take into consideration is like our brain chemistry has so much to do with how we metabolize cannabinoids as well.
1: Well, I mean, and think about, uh, I mean, we'll just stick to veterans, right? The, the, the brain chemistry of a veteran can change and probably has changed, right? Especially for veterans who have experienced traumatic brain injuries, right? Yeah. Their, their, no, their brain no longer functions like it used to, and more than likely, it, it has some sort of disordered function. It's no longer working in, at, it, there's no longer in homeostasis. Yep. So, it, you know, and, and, the, and the normal um, course of treatment for something like that would be drugs and surgery. You know, maybe. maybe I mean, maybe not even surgery, but you get stuff like I mean, and and if it works, it works for you. And I'm I'm happy that this is an option. But you know, I'm I'm not familiar with stellate ganglion blocks. I was just doing a, just kind of brushing up on that today. You know, that, that's one of these proposed treatments for PTSD. They propose all these exotic and and invasive therapies, and it's like, and they still ignore cannabis, which is one of the supremely frustrating things about what I do. But you know, this is essentially injecting an, anesthet- an anesthetic into the base of your brain, into like uh, into the stellate ganglion. Yeah. Um, you know, and, but because, you know, but it, it, I think it, what is it called It like calms the limbic nerve or something along those lines. And there's, there's a, there's a part of PTSD is basically getting caught into a, uh, continuous like fight or flight response. Uh-huh. Right. And that's a physiological response to what could have been, you know, a, you know, an external event, but, and, and driven essentially by like just witness trauma, right. Not necessarily a brain injury, but you have what is, what, what, can be I don't know if they considered like like a brain injury in that your you know the physical parts of your brain are now functioning differently than they used to.
0: Absolutely. And
1: and and you know and and in the sense that like and they found like okay you, you put a little, you, you you inject anesthesia into this one ganglion and then all of a sudden like it calms that that response and now people aren't you know people with PTSD aren't locked into that fight or flight. Uh, but I mean. Let's be honest, right? Like, okay, you're injecting an anesthetic into somebody's fucking brain, you know, into somebody's, excuse me, somebody's spinal cord.
0: It's okay. We um, were on Radio Misfits yeah. Network, you can <laughs> swear. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I, cur- I curse pretty regularly, but yeah, I, ch- I try to clean it up generally. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, some of this stuff is ridiculous, right? Like, it's the, the I mean, this is just an example of the lengths we'll go to do anything but look at canvas. Right.
0: Right. Um, right. Or just in general, like, yeah. you know, having things that are, That are natural, you know, that can't necessarily be patented. (laughs) Well, I would love to see a clinical trial on, you know, soldiers who have undergone trauma and right after they get treatment with CBD to see what that does, especially with like uh, what the incidences of CPTSD are after the fact if you've had some sort of restorative treatment on the spot, like... When when they're oh, off the field uh, oh, and they're definitely. coming back, yeah, because I think that. Well, I mean, I mean, and that's go hmm. ahead, Oh, I was just going to say I, I, one of the things that we just we I'm what am I saying? I'm preaching to the choir when I when I say this is that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, where is the restorative practices to support people who have been through that kind of trauma?
1: You know, and and restorative, right? Like you know, pound of prevention is worth or ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure, and. You know, if we understand that people in military service, or any other job, or occupation, or or circumstance, you know, let's just stick to brain injuries for a second. Um, you know, that might experience a brain injury, whether it's a or mild, you know, non-penetrating, or acute, or like, you know, basically getting the, you know, getting blown up in Iraq, or just getting your 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 nugget knocked by a blast wave from a, you know, from a heavy weapon, right? right. They both produce, you know, these kind of um, these physical forces that damage your brain. You know, some, you know the, the sort of chronic exposure, you know, what we found is that a lot, of, uh, a lot of people who served in the military who were in positions where they were you know, using explosives or firing heavy weapons or otherwise exposed to chronic low-level blast waves develop thing, end up developing what people initially, what is initially diagnosed as PTSD, but ends up being revealed to be a brain injury and that the white matter in their brain has basically been rattled apart by constant exposure to these, uh, to these blast events, right? But, never, but these blast events never raise the level of producing, like, an acute harm, right? They just might, you know, they might be a little, like, lightheaded or well, maybe a little nauseous after it, but, you know, it's not like their ears are bleeding or anything, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, they just go on with their day, and then years of that, and then all of a sudden at the end, you know, at their end of this, or then they're getting medically discharged because, you know, their memory is shot. You know, or you know, they know they, they lose their ability to emotionally regulate,
0: right. right? And they're
1: and they're wondering like why, how, you know,
0: right, right. Now,
1: if you were to develop a protocol, I mean, I, I'm you know pretty uh, anti-war at this point, but let's just say you know the military doesn't disappear tomorrow, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and you wanted to protect the people, you know, the people that were training at least, and you know that these that these blast like blast exposures are thing that happens, you know, I, I I want to say the Israeli the Israeli um, Military has experimented with CBD nasal sprays as a prophylactic or as like a uh, an immediate you know therapeutic for people who have been exposed to blast events, right? Because hey, CBD you know, um, among with other the, the other non psychoactive cannabinoids, patented as neuroprotectants and antioxidants by the health by, by the Department of Health and Human Services back in you know 2003, ancient times, right? Right? Like so, you know, we we understand that these things have those you know. That these things have those effects the fact that we continue to not use them or implement them in any real way is really just a a reflection of our lack of political will and and I'm sure uh, you know an oceans worth of misunderstanding or lack of understanding about the efficacy of cannabinoids and cannabis medicine in general right like that's that's still a huge uh, a huge uh, thing we've got to overcome because I think, and a lot, cause a lot of uh, elected leaders are still thinking this is just like, oh, this is just going to be how we're going to balance our budget.
0: Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, and 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 <laughs> speaking no, you, of... you are
1: really missing the forest, right? Yeah. <laughs> they
0: they they miss the message continuously. Um, yeah. But speaking about taxes, so for those who have who have found cannabis and are using it regularly to alleviate, you know, their discomfort, symptom management, however they're using it. I mean, we are looking at a time where governments are looking at cannabis as the ultimate bailout for all of their economic woes, which we know is not realistic. It's a business like any other. But because of this, we're seeing exorbitantly high um, prices on cannabis. And when legalization occurred all of our compassion programs dried up. And so with the collective efforts of people like you, me, our, our colleagues in the greater cannabis community, people like Joe Roney, um, oh, yeah. Weed for Warriors, we were able to pass SB 34. Yeah. And those guys are so awesome. I just, it's, it was amazing. No, I mean, I'm, how I'm inspired. Hmm?
1: Yeah. No, I mean, and I've, I've, I've really taken a, taken a page from, you know, the, the NorCal Bay area book when it comes to, to trying to realize compassion programs because you know, I'm, I'm based in Southern California and the Long Beach area. And, you know, there's nothing, there's really nothing down here. And historically there has been nothing, you know, it's, you know, the, I think the closest um, based on some research I did might've been like West Hollywood, right. Where they were operating a, uh, you know, a compassionate um you know, dispensary essentially specifically for, you know, AIDS and cancer patients and other, you know, terminally or severely ill people, mm-hmm. right? But that, that got shut down by George W. Bush's DEA back in 2001. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not really aware of any other really significant efforts to kind of make compassion, you know, make cannabis available to patients uh, on a compassionate basis. That, that has kind of been where, you know, where we started from. You know, we've, uh, you know, with SB 34, though, that now creates the pathway that we're trying to now bring bring cannabis, you know, people who are nominally cannabis uh, allies, right? People who at least talk the talk about, you know, caring about patients and not being, a, you know, understanding that this is more than just about, you know, the bottom line. And I'll be honest, anyone who thinks that you're going to, you know, as a, as a business operator, to think that you're going to be able to be successful long term – and not be able to, and not service patients, you know, in, the, in this sort of time before cannabis becomes like a fully regulated FDA approved, you know, I, in, in whatever whatever circumstance that cannabis is sort of available, I imagine it will be available in many forms, but patients are going to be the number one consumers, always. Right. Always. Right? Because they, they have to, because it's literally something they can't go without. Right. right? So, to, to try to, you know, and... I don't even think the industry is really capturing most of the patient population right now because, as you mentioned, the taxes are way too high. I mean, you're paying it's a 15% excise tax right off the top, then you're talking your local sales tax, then you're talking you know whatever county or other locality taxes might be uh, put into place on top of that. So you could be end, you could end up paying 35% on top of whatever is already a pretty expensive product, and then you know and and you know in your Thirty-five dollar eighth is now fifty dollars. Right, <laughs> and all, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, now I have to make a lot, Now I have to start making hard decisions about whether I'm going to be t- either, either even buying legal cannabis or just buying cannabis at all. Especially mm-hmm. in times of, in, in what we're experiencing right now, um, you know, the enhanced unemployment has ended. Uh, a lot of people are in, in very tough financial straits, and I know especially among veterans who have the option of going back to pharmaceuticals. A lot of them are because as bad as they are sometimes having nothing is worse and
0: yeah yeah, yeah. cuz that's and, and, and
1: it's a it's a fucking yeah it's a it's a real shame
0: oh it's it is it's it's horrible i i just uh i was just emailing with somebody who was on my program before uh, my cannabis compassion program who's you know he's he w- was a vietnam he is a vietnam vet and he's at home dying you know and it's like how do you these people need our help? And one of the things SB34 passing is great, but a lot of people have been really confused as to how to go about giving or why they should or you know, wondering like where they'd get donations. So one of the things that I've been working on with a team of colleagues is creating best practices and putting together something that people can look at it so they realize that it's not as difficult as you might think um, and that it can be really impactful because we only have a few programs in California and we have so many people right. who need help. So we need to do what we can to encourage people to to start doing these. And I'll have to say, like when I, I started my program back up in October and um, I was just overwhelmed by the generosity of the companies for donating because i i was really nervous i mean we prior to covid we were looking at major extinction events in our industry so you know you want to be able to serve the people in need but you also are cognizant of the fact that a lot of these companies were in distress too but people really really pitch in to help and i just think that you know we just need to let people know that it is possible to do this. It's not as hard as you think it's, you know, I know metric scary, but it actually supports this now. <laughs> yes, you know, yes. Metric is everyone's nightmare. Um, but we do like, and, and it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's crazy how, you know, we can't forget the people that we actually, the reason that we have access to cannabis now is because of these people who are sick.
1: Exactly. It was cancer and AIDS patients, right, yep. who basically paved the way to, to commercialization of cannabis in the state and across the country. Yep. I mean, in this and, you know, in San Francisco, right, uh, you know, gay Vietnam veteran hippie Dennis Barone, you know, Brownie Mary Rathbun, you know, a lot of other, uh, you know, and also, I mean, obviously there were advocates that joined in, in the Prop 60, uh, excuse me, Prop 215 battle uh, of SoCal, too. But it has been predominantly um, you know, Bay Area folks. And I've kind of developed my own theory as to why there's just been better compassion in the Bay. And I want to say it's just because you have so much better access or close access to outdoor, yeah. whereas basically in Southern California, everything has been grown for indoor and for, you know, for sale. It's a lot more expensive to grow indoor. Um, you know, it, it's it, it's less, uh, less feasible for some of these operators, even if they were inclined to do so to give away free product, even if it's stuff like trim. Uh, whereas, you know, the Bay, you know, up in the Emerald triangle, you know, in the Bay area being right at the, uh, the, you know, a <laughs> hundred miles south of that, uh, you know, and a lot of farmers who basically, you know, who, who really, uh, I, I guess lived that sort of ethos that this is something to be shared. Right. And this is something that, you know, everyone should have access to and yeah, you know, I'll, you know, I'll grow and I'll make my money and, but you know, I'll give, you know, I'll give 10, 15, a hundred pounds away uh, to people who need it just because, right. That's just, you know, it's like giving, giving back to the earth in a way. Yeah. Um, You know, trying to get that ethos back into the cannabis industry, I think is what's going to save it, to be honest. I don't think that it's ever going to be able to get the kind of tax relief it wants in any kind of near term without allying directly with patients, because the industry doesn't have the people numbers to really turn out any kind of movement to help them, right? They have to rely on paid lobbyists, you know, who's going to come to bat for these, for some of these uh, businesses if, for whatever reason, you know, the state or locality started to go after them for any reason.
0: Yeah, right? I, I definitely... Who are your
1: allies, you know?
0: Yeah, I think that it's definitely it's still very much a grassroots thing, because when you look at when when we passed Prop 64 and California allowed adult use cannabis, you know, people were saying to me, you know, basically because I was, you know, back for the 215 days, kind of like, ah, oh, girl, you're obsolete. <laughs> medical's no more, we don't need that and I was like well whether we're calling it medical or (laughs) recreational or adult use or what have you, it's still a substance that creates a reaction in the body and I really don't think it's going to be a bunch of stoners that haven't had access to cannabis before busting down the doors and I was right because what we're really looking at were people who didn't want to have conversations with their doctors about getting recommendations but were curious about what cannabis could do to help them so We still, I mean, we have people who come in and, you know, they're curious and they really just want to know what it's like to get high. And there's nothing wrong with that either. I don't want to, I'm not creating any stigma around that, but what we're getting more of are people that are saying, I'm having problems sleeping or I'm anxious or, Hey, do you think if I took this after I worked out, it would help my muscles bounce back faster? You know, like lots of questions like that more so. And even though they don't have cards, they're still looking at using it in a way that's more about creating balance.
1: Well, I mean, I, I look at it just like, you know, it, it, it's, it's you're right. You know, this is a plant. It has compounds, chemicals. These chemicals have effects on your body, you know. We understand a lot, some of the effects at least, and some of how these things, you know, how THC interacts with your receptors and, you know, what kind of system, you know, systemic Change it creates in, in your body and all the different processes it influences, right? And then how does CBD do that? And how do these things do that in combination? And how do they, you know, and that's and that's where I, I truly believe that there's a cannabinoid for it, for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing that anyone is taking either as a medicine or consuming as a food. I don't think that could be either replaced or enhanced with some cannabinoid. Um, or, you know, if you just want to like, you know, step back a little bit and just say, uh, you know, hemp seed, you know, even as a, you know, just as a plant product. Um, you know, and that's, that's the potential of this plant. I mean, it's so vast. It is. Like it, and sometimes it makes, kind of makes me feel like, you know, I'm like, oh man, you know, it can do, you know, like, it's kind of like Jack you know, well, actually Jack R was right. Right. Like, you know, the emperor has no clothes, uh, you know, hemp, and cannabis have the potential to, you know, disrupt literally trillions of dollars in, uh, in U.S., uh, you know, commercial activity in terms of, you know, influencing everything from, obviously, the production of medicine, right, across <laughs> – I mean, what, what disease state or condition or illness, you know, could a, cannab- a cannabinoid not impact? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Probably all of them, right? Like, in, like once, we, once we really start to, you know, go down this ladder – and really figure out you know, what, what everything's doing and how we can get them, and more importantly, like how we can uh, you know, produce them at scale. Because a lot of these, you know, THC and CBD are cheap, right? But the other stuff, CBG or you know THCV or you know, these other sort of minor cannabinoids that you don't really see in, in great concentration in the plant, it does, might not make the sense necessarily to grow a ton of biomass just to extract a little bit of these things, especially if these like minor cannabinoids end up being, you know, I don't think that they're going to, like, suddenly be, replace THC. I really think that's the workhorse <laughs> mm-hmm. of a lot of the medical effects that people get from cannabis. But I'm willing to admit that I don't know – obviously, I don't know anything, uh, you know, really, when it comes to, you know, cannabinoids. I mean, beyond what we're just scratching the surface of. What? So could there be, you know, like that sort of, like, miracle cannabinoid? Maybe. But I'm, I'm probably more – you know, more likely it's going to be figuring out these formulations, right? Sure. And trying to trying to tailor, you know – this ratio of CBTHC or this, you know, the presence of CBG, you know, might enhance, you know, this particular, you know, effect uh, that you're looking. And, you know, and uh, that's, I mean, look at what you're doing, right? Like, I think you're, you're, you're standing at the, at the future of this sort of personalized medicine, which is going to be made possible with cannabis. Um, and what I'm hoping to be sort of be a follow-on plant and fungi medicines uh, that are going to hopefully be scheduled within the next, you know, a, a decade or
0: <laughs> well there's a lot of there's a lot of synergy between it all you know and that's that's the thing right yeah and and i think and why like, not put it back in the hands of individuals
1: you know rather yeah. than just gatekeep it all behind you know and, and obviously a very uh, i really don't like demonizing pharmaceuticals as a rule because they exist they have certain effects some people really benefit from those right mm-hmm. i don't think that a lot of pharmaceutical use and prescription is appropriate though, especially when we know that there are lower risk alternatives available if we you know just put our shit together um, to make those available so
0: there's a time and yeah. a place for it there's a time and a place exactly. for it, and I really feel like especially when I would when I would still be in the dispensary more often and I'd have people who would be frustrated about availability or prices or taxation. One of the things that I mentioned is that you know, let your voice be heard. You pay taxes. You use cannabis. You're a functional member of society, and you vote. and And this past election really showed the people are speaking. They're they're supporting cannabis, and the more they do, the more there's normalization, and the more politicians and policymakers are going to feel the pressure to actually learn something and. And hopefully make some good policy because that's one of the biggest things for me lately Has been talking about the fact that education drives good policy. And it's not just about educating politicians because honestly, they don't give a shit unless the people, their constituents give a shit. And their constituents care when they're educated.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I, you know, I, I, like, to, I, I like to stay pragmatic when it comes to... You know how we talk about creating the, the political solutions we need to make all these things possible, right? Because the only thing that's standing in our way for, for any of this stuff, you know, making cannabis normalized as a medicine, you know, fully investigating its potential and making that available to people, right? All that is just political, political will. Now, you can manufacture political will. Uh, obviously, people are already overwhelmingly in favor of cannabis. Shout out to South Dakota, New Jersey, Montana, and Arizona – to, you know, Arizona, Montana, and South Dakota, not particularly liberal states, right? Give You know, obviously New Jersey's been pretty blue for a long time. Um, you know, the fact that, like, and more importantly, the fact that South Dakota went from complete criminalization to adult use, I think, really needs to be pointed out.
0: Oh, totally. <laughs> they,
1: skipped that, they, they skipped that middle. They've actually passed both uh, both initiatives. So there is going to be a medical program that's created, but they're but it, they're also going to have adult use right right, uh, right beside that. Yeah, that's the first um, time I've seen you know, that.
0: I, yeah, I, I that just, is the
1: first time it's happened. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. It's it's not a liberal thing. It's not a conservative thing. A couple years ago, I actually, yeah. um, met with Michael Steele, and he's totally into Former head of the RNC, hilarious guy. I look at
1: John Boehner. Yeah, sitting on the board of uh you know of multi of multi state operator uh, cannabis companies and things like that, right. He's, I mean, I, and I don't, you know, and, and to some to some extent, I don't really care how you get there. Nope. I don't care if you think this is going to be, you know, your moneymaker, or if you see the 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 overwhelming, just moral and ethical, like imperative to change all this. I mean, to me, that's it, right? Like, and that's what keeps me on this, and sort of keeps me, keeps me going, is that it is such an injustice. And of course, it's tied into a million other injustices, but it is one of the biggest manifestations, I think, of injustice we can point to right now in our society and say that, right? If we could change that, we can help millions of patients. We can, you know, decriminal, you know, put, you know, thousands of people out of jail and prevent hundreds of thousands of people from ever, you know, billions of people from ever seeing the inside of a jail or even being arrested,
0: ever, right? right? right.
1: Like the potential. And it's just... And 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 to understand as a policy you know, policy person, just sort of like what the the pin you gotta pull that just brings it all crumbling down is just this one thing. It's the scheduling of cannabis, right? You know that's what's holding this all together. And it's such a weak such a weak pin in the in the grand scheme of things. It can be it can happen administratively, right? The president, you know, Joe Biden, day one could deschedule cannabis. Is he gonna do it? No, but he could. And the fact remains that you know, you know, we talk about South Dakota. We talk about changing politicians' minds and the education thing. The number four, the number four man in the Senate on um, the Republican majority, John Thune, senior se- senior senator from South Dakota. That guy is super anti-cannabis. He now found fi- he now finds himself as one of the few Republicans representing an adult youth state. Right? Is that going to change his tune immediately? Probably not. But this also gives an opportunity for people who are willing to spend money in this kind of realm. And, you know, going back to pragmatism, I think there's really three things that move politicians. Masses of people, media, coverage, attention, focus, and money. The
0: three M's. Right?
1: The three M's, right? (laughs) And politics is transactional by nature. It always has been. To kind of think of it in other terms, I think, is to do yourself a disservice. So realize that for, you know, you're always going to have a handful of these champions that are going to do your stuff, you know, carry your issue no matter what. We've got that. Earl Blumenauer. Barbara Lee, right? And we, you know, Barbara Lee, you know, maybe senior, maybe going to be, uh, you know, fingers crossed. Uh, if Gavin Newsom is going uh, to do anything good here, uh, make her senator, right? <laughs> I'd yeah. love to have Barbara Lee in the Senate. oh you know, Barbara Lee speaks name. for me. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, Berkeley, Oakland, I mean, she reps some of the, you know, some of the districts that have made the biggest contributions to uh, cannabis legalization in this country. Yep. Right? So, you know, versus Nancy Pelosi, who also reps one of those districts. And yet, not anti-cannabis by any means, but certainly not a champion. Um, you, know, you know, so is, you know, but going back to John Thune, is John Thune going to be a champion? No. But, but when we get to legalization in two or four or six years or however long it takes, right, and John Thune's probably still going to be in the Senate because it's South Dakota. These are seats that people hold on to for a long time. Right. Uh, you know, we're going to now have some leverage on him. And unless they get rid of the filibuster, we're going to need 60 votes, right, which means – unless the Democrats really do a better job of messaging and putting up good candidates means that we're going to have to need, we're going to need Republicans. I mean, you're going to come up with like nine to 11 Republicans right now. That's a tough, that's a tough one. Right. right. Uh, but it's not, it's not impossible. And as states, I mean, and honestly the, the states kind of make, make all federal change possible. And I mean, eventually we'll just get it to a tipping point where, you know, once once three fifths of the states have done it, gone adult use, I mean, if Congress hasn't moved by then, I think you've got very strong grounds to introduce a constitutional amendment, right? You know, if you can get three fifths of the states to essentially uh, agree to ratify, uh, or, or, you know, create some sort of like interstate compact, um, similar similar to what's kind of happening with like electoral votes and other and other ways. But uh, anyway, there's there's a lot of ways that sort of, you know, the the tail can wag the dog here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I guess you know the you know the or if the dog wags the tail. I mean, like we're the you know the, the country is the dog, right? That's the body. The tail is Congress, right? Yeah. And right now, I don't know. Like we just got to wag harder, because uh, like and eventually, you know, and you know the, these other M's are going to come along with it. But uh, you know, until they, until those are really brought to bear in a in a significant and 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 I think sustained way, Congress is going to be able to keep kicking the can down the road. Cause just look at. What they're going to be dealing with over the, just the next session i mean covid relief uh i don't know green jobs you know healthcare. right like that stuff just takes i mean that's it right like good luck on trying to get significant uh legislation introduced and passed when all the energy is basically being focused into these other areas it is very difficult that has basically been one of the biggest issues that that cannabis has dealt with as a issue in general is just that there's so many other priorities so how do we make – we need to make cannabis a, voting, a voter priority or at least an electoral priority, and that's not going to happen necessarily from either of the parties. Democrats are the most po- – are the most positioned to embrace cannabis, still refuse to do so, mind-boggling, every time. that Another cycle goes by, and they see, oh, great, now look at, like, again, South Dakota, Montana. Like, these are – Arizona just you know, went blue for the first time in, like, 25, you know, 30 years Right. And it also went and also just legalized adult use. Like what, you know, read the room.
0: <laughs> it's true. Well, you know, get on it. <laughs> I think I think there's no way that it can be denied that it's it's happening and that more and more people are getting interested. And even when people live in states where there isn't cannabis, when they're visiting other states, like we get a lot of people from all. Well, in the time that we when we don't have COVID, although tourism is actually starting, people are starting to visit places again. Um, interesting yeah I know we get you know a lot of people are are curious and want to check it out and I just really you know I just want to thank you for you know what you're doing and you know what your other veteran colleagues are doing to to help people because it's you know we need to we need to honor and support our vets and also this work furthers it for everybody else as well we really we have a lot a lot of work to do even you know thank
1: what, you for saying that yeah yeah
0: absolutely and um and i i really look forward to you know collaborating on on future things so you just you just let me know if you ever need my help um and also for our listeners who are interested in learning more about your organization and what you do how can they get a hold of you on social media or follow you
1: Oh, yeah. So uh, first, let me just say your your point that like, you know, the, what 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 we're trying to do and the focus on veterans, I, I really try to broaden it out. Right. Mm-hmm. It, you know, veterans are part of a community. You know, if, if anything, I think we're we're excellent messengers, but we but we obviously
0: can't do it alone. Right. No, you can't. So,
1: yeah. So, I mean, we we, we need we need the support, but we're you know, this is my second service. This is my partner, and I know a lot of other veterans. You know, shout out again to uh, you know uh, Ryan Miller and Operation Evac, and you know Sean Kieran and Mark Carillo at Weed for Warriors Project. You know Joe Arion at Weedly Collective. Everybody's I works mean, so hard. Yeah, I and mean, they're right. I mean, they, and they're they're, they're 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 they've planted the flag for for veterans and patients. Right? Like our focus is currently on veterans, but you know the more support that becomes available, I really see this as a you know this is a. Uh, an all-patient, you know, all-community type effort, right? And the more people, the more people we get and, buy, and get to buy into this, the more uh, the more likely we are to succeed in our sort of long-term goals and normalizing and making this available to everyone. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, that all being said, the ways that you can, uh, you know, follow us or learn more about us, um, we're at www.veteranscanna, canna c a n n a coalition org uh... that is also our handle on instagram and facebook veterans canna coalition uh... yeah and if you have uh, we're, we currently have a call to action uh... on the more act so if you have any interest in contacting a member of congress and sending them a message about why they should support the more act particularly uh... you know as it relates to veterans uh... you can text bcc that's victor charlie charlie to five two eight eight six and you'll receive a link click on the link Uh, Enter your zip code and address, and basically it will direct you to your member of Congress, so you can then send a message in support of this bill, um, which would, again, deschedule, decriminalize, and importantly, uh, fund the uh, restorative justice programs, like expungement and social equity.
0: Eric, a pleasure always. We always have stimulating conversation when we get down on policy and (laughs) – everything. Yeah, we gotta talk more. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We definitely will talk more. And I'd love to have you on again too, especially when there are are new things that you're working on. So everybody, Eric Gopel from the cannabis or I'm sorry, the Veterans Thanks Cannabis much, Coalition. Thank you so much. Um, If you'd like to follow Planted, we have social media and website links. Um, On Instagram, we're Planted with Sarah. We're also Planted with Sarah on Facebook. Also, www.plantedwithsarah.com. And, of course, you can find us on Radio Misfits Network, uh, Amazon, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Uh, google and apple podcasts so stay tuned this month um like i mentioned last month we are going to two episodes a month um really exciting coming into the new year with so many great guests so please everybody uh stay in touch stay safe and be good to each other out there it's a crazy world take care